Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out Toronto today. We're ready to roll. We got a good podcast for you today. We promise March 1st, fresh new month. Lots of stuff coming. St. Patrick's Day. No vaccine passports. We won't be wearing a mask if we choose to by the end of the month. I know it's controversial. Some of you will be okay. We'll all be fine. And also uh, on the show today, uh, Bob Ray, ambassador uh, for Canada to the United Nations. His first stop after a powerhouse speech uh, at the U.N. General Assembly in New York about Russia, Ukraine, Canada, North America, and uh, and really all Western democracies and our commitment and priority and the importance of getting this historic moment right. We cover Russia, Ukraine on our Chatterbox uh, segment as well with uh, two awesome guys. I really like them both. Mayor Patrick Brown from Brampton, uh, Steve Pakin, host of TVO's The Agenda, which you can see at 8 o'clock or 11 o'clock Eastern time. We got a lot coming up. It's Toronto Today, and it starts now. This is rather remarkable. Um, there's certainly people looking at what's happening with uh, with Russia and wondering, wondering if this is a quick fix. It doesn't appear to be that way. And I say that not just because... We're looking at uh, at at all these at what I would call myths about Russia, but I think the world has dramatically changed just in the last uh, five or six days. Um, Russia's failed so far in every objective they've had. You may not know this is out there certainly in in our mainstream media, but they're covering this dramatically so in uh, in Europe, where the European Union is stronger than it's ever been. NATO is really important now. We were debating. Remember that time when Donald Trump, uh, they were talking about him behind his back? That was at NATO. Boris Johnson's involved. Justin Trudeau's involved. And then uh, <laughs> and then uh, uh, Trump called Justin Trudeau two-faced, which appeals to a lot of you. I know that. You like that Trump said that. Um, but at the time, that's that was a NATO meeting. But what is out there is certainly a thousand Russians dying a day in this particular assault. I know you're seeing the mayhem and destruction. You're seeing people, um, you know, left without homes. You're seeing families split up. There's just agonizing video. Can't really, we can't really play it, but it's 31 seconds of, uh, of a Ukrainian boy talking about his parents uh, splitting and the dad going back. He says he's going to go back and, or stay behind and sell things and help uh, the army heroes in Ukraine. But he's near tears. And I can't, I was, I had a moment last night watching on television the idea of a, uh, a baby stroller being pushed by about an eight-year-old. And he's pushing what's obviously, his, I think, a sister and a brother, his two sisters. It was hard to tell, really little kids, like toddlers. And he's pushing one of those double strollers, uh, which has like a, like almost like a bunk bed type stroller with an upper layer and a lower layer. We used to have something called a sit and stand where your kid could stand on the stroller while, um, while you pushed your baby. But this was, this was a little more complex than that. And it told me, told me that though there's tragedy all over the world and famine and grief and sadness and malnutrition and, and, uh, and war-torn countries, okay? Like we only need go to some spots in Africa. We only need go to some other spots in Asia and we'll find it. But it told me that these were very average citizens, almost average to well-off citizens who've been displaced. If, you, if that rings, if this has rung more true for you in the last five or six days, let me say this. You don't need to apologize for that. That's how you feel. 
That's 9-11 hits you more than a building blowing up in Egypt, a building blowing up in the Middle East, a building blowing up in, uh, in, in the Balkans. It does. It does make something more or less of a tragedy, but you know how that feels. You know how heavy your chest was. You know how it was hard on September 12th, September 13th, September 14th to put one foot in front of the other. I think it was a good 10 days where you just weren't in shock all the time, where you're like, is it okay to go for a run again? I remember going to play hockey with friends in late September of 2001 thinking, is this all right? Are we allowed to do this? But bottom lining is, in four days, okay, leading up to yesterday, Time Magazine says so, 4,000 Russians have died. That's twice the number of U.S. deaths in Afghanistan. I don't know how many Canadian soldiers we lost in Afghanistan, but it wasn't a thousand a day. It wasn't a thousand a year. It wasn't a hundred a year. So things are, uh, you know, happening and developing at a breakneck speed. And it won't matter if the war isn't over. Um, this is going to be an unbelievably long scenario unless Russia just cuts the tape and gets on out. And I don't know that that's going to happen. Here's the other myth about Russia, I think, before we get to some of the sound here that I want to get to, is that um, this is uh, this is a pretty primitive dictatorship. Not a lot of information is shared. They don't seem unified on set goals. Russian soldiers are showing up in Ukraine, not really knowing why they're there, how they got there, how long they're going to stay, whether they have the supplies to stay, um, and all the like. That's not what Germany was in World War II. Germany was organized. They knew what they wanted. Okay. We know this. Okay. Um, but Russia doesn't pose the same kind of threat. They, their planes can't even get off the ground in European Union countries. They've had their finances cut to the quick. Okay. Their bank reserves are getting frozen. Sport organizations are recognizing they're outlaws. They're outlaws to the rest of the world. And if you told me a week ago, okay, just watching this. I suppose more intensely than casually, but I'm no expert. If you told me a week ago, Russia would be within eight days recognized as an international pariah, I never would have believed it. I never would have thought it would have gotten to this point. I would have thought we'd look and said, not great. Wish that wasn't happening. Let's do something besides hashtagging I stand with Ukraine. Let's do something to help those people. And it's a, almost a certainty now, a certainty now. With Russia as an international pariah, Ukraine at some point is going to join the European Union and NATO. They'll be in both. And many countries are. But they want a normal country. And they have the opportunity with uh, a, a lot of fight and, uh, and, and aggression in the next couple of weeks to make certain that they get that. But the Russians, to, to see the Russians as despised worldwide as they are, whereas you can look at the Cold War and say, don't love what Russia's doing here. Don't really love what the Americans are doing here. We got none of that right now. What a massive miscalculation by Putin. Did they just start to believe their own propaganda? Um, it's unbelievable. In eight days, what has transpired here? Uh, Ian Bremer is super bright, runs G Zero. He's talking with former Admiral uh, David Petraeus, who obviously led a lot of the organization into uh, not just Afghanistan, uh, but also some of Iraq as well. You know, uh, not everybody's got uh, got a flawless record, but Petraeus knows his stuff when it comes to military conflict. He told Ian Bremmer the importance of NATO and Ukraine now, 
can't be un, under uh, undersold because of how organized that this has gotten. I mean, he has really given NATO a reason to live again. Uh, it, and again, it, this is the best time for NATO since the end of the Cold you War. Have, you've been coming to this conference for I a long since, time since, now. Since I was in the mid-80s I when mean, I was a speechwriter for the when, Supreme Court. When's the last time NATO felt this coherent? Well, back in the Cold War. Right. Uh, and it was, in fact, my boss, the Supreme Allied Commander, you know, in those days, the Sakir was almost the king of Europe because, of course, you have the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact faced off with uh, the West and NATO. Uh, yeah, I think it's right to say there hasn't been that degree of unity. There have certainly been some missions that have been very important. I would say the Balkans missions. Yeah, the, what was happening in the mid-90s uh, with the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. We can't say we've never seen this before. We can't say that this isn't that this all goes all the way back to 1938 to 1945 for something quite like this. But the world's reacting differently than uh, than 94 and 95. The world's reacting differently than the genocide in Rwanda. We seem mobilized by this. We are certainly mobilized by this in a way that neither of those two things had us do. Is it social media? Is it uh, that that Ukraine has shown this fighting spirit? Is it Zelensky? It's a lot of factors. It isn't just one thing here that we're talking about. Bob Ray, I mentioned, will be on the show at 8.05. He spoke at the United Nations yesterday. It was just a powerhouse performance. Steve Pakin's going to be on the show at 7.30 leading into Bob Ray at 8 o'clock. But Steve Pakin, host of the Agenda on TVO, posted uh, a lot of Bob's speech Bob was borderline brilliant. I mean, this is one of the great oratorical Canadian moments that I've seen in recent memory. And I don't see them all, but it's the one that stuck with me a lot. I made my kids watch it and making a 16 and 13 year old watch something that they're like, what's the what's the deal? It's just a guy in a suit talking, but it made them care. This was Bob Ray last night. And no nation has the right to undermine the integrity of any other nation. That's what it means. That's what the sovereign equality means. Goes on to say, all members shall settle their international disputes by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. So when we say desist, dialogue, de-escalate, we're not asking someone to do us a favor. We're asked them to do what they're actually signed up to do. And that's the challenge. And finally, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. This is not an option. This is not something that say, well, if you'd like to do this, this perhaps you'd like to consider doing it this way. We're not asking any nation state any member state to do us a favor. We're asking them to follow the rules and to follow the law. Yeah, all of that. Bob was brilliant. He'll join us at 8.05 this morning on Toronto Today. Let me say this about the, uh, let me pivot quick to the cultural changes happening here. Um, I never, ever thought, uh, again, eight days ago, Russia's an international pariah. No, getting kicked out of FIFA, uh, the IOC. I, kn I know we just had an Olympics. So you're like, what? What, what does that do? There's not another Olympics until Paris in the summer of 2024. At least we're going to a non-authoritarian authoritarian place for a change. No matter what you think of the French. Um, in France, that is. But either way, either way, 
Um, I never thought I'd see this. F1 race taken away. Champions League final in late May taken away. There's a team that's not even comprised of all Russian players, Spartak Moscow. They're kicked out of the Europa League. They were in a round of 16 a match with a Portuguese team. The Portuguese team gets to advance. They're out. You're, it doesn't matter if you're Russian or not on that team. There's English players, French players, Belgian players. You're out. I never thought I'd see it. Yesterday, the IIHF finally weighs in. By the way, about half an hour after the IIHF did this, Hockey Canada put out a statement. Last to the table as usual about something important, but that's another story. But the IIHF Council suspended all Russian and Belarusian national and club teams from IIHF competitions until further notice. So uh, they don't get to host the World Juniors next Christmas in 22-23. They don't get to come to Edmonton this summer and play in the World Juniors. And my biggest thing is uh, two things. One, what's going what's gonna to change this? What will make uh, this, this not the case within six months, 12 months, 18 months? I don't have a clue. This isn't going to be a short conflict. We won't talk about it ad nauseum as we are right now because we're just getting going and we still got the juice for it. You may not and I may not. This would have been the case with the war in Afghanistan. You just can't be barraged by it every single day. Can't. I mean, look at we got vaccine passports dropped today. It's about as safe to be anywhere with your vaccination as it's been in about 24 months. Safe to go anywhere and do almost anything. And we'll talk about that on the show in a little bit. But I've never seen so many cultural changes. Yesterday, I see this. Disney's out. Disney is out of Russia. They're going to stop releasing films, quote, given the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and the tragic humanitarian crisis. They're not out of China, but they're out of Russia. Warner Brothers Studios announced it's canceling the release of the new Batman movie. One of the most anticipated films of the year. Try and see it in Russia. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Um... And I I think, you know, some people might say, what's the big deal? They'll find a way around this. It is a big deal because I'll tell you what it educates too. how do I know about South African apartheid? Not because of sanctions on uh, on grains, not because of sanctions on gas and oil sports. They weren't allowed. That's that's me as a kid. They weren't allowed to be in the Olympics. They weren't allowed to be in team competition. South Africa wasn't until and I'm going to ask Bob Ray about this at eight o'clock. They weren't allowed. And so I knew that it mattered. I knew that it was significant. We made them international pariahs. But again, if you ever told me this would happen with Russia, God forbid. I, I, again, people are texting in Putin and his cronies believe their own propaganda. Maybe so. Maybe it's part of that. But uh, the Russians also saw Ukraine as part of themselves. And they wanted to invade thinking, don't harm Ukraine civilians because they will see you as liberators. It often doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I'll mention this again from seeing this last night. The Russian soldiers, they have no idea why they're there. No idea. None. You ask North Americans about 2001, why are you in Afghanistan? We're going to take out the Taliban. We're going to look for Osama bin Laden. They knew the mission. But Russians here, they don't know the, they don't know the reverse. And all that, all that they've made happen, ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, they're joint. They're picking up guns and they're fighting back. They're joining the Ukrainian armed forces and they hate the invaders. So there's only one thing that could potentially happen next unless Russia blows them to smithereens and goes really medieval on Ukraine. They're going to lose.
Former Premier of Ontario is one Bob Ray. He is the current ambassador to the United Nations, and he gave a 14-minute speech in the UN General Assembly yesterday about Canada's commitment to Russia and Ukraine, but it was very pointed towards other Western democracy. And he's kind enough to join us now, uh, less than 24 hours after that speech, which I highly advise you to go online uh, and watch. But we're going to have our own conversation here. Ambassador Ray, it is great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you very much for making the time. I would assume going into that conversation, going into that speech, um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff you want to get out in terms of uh, being pragmatic and being forceful. But there's a lot of emotion based on all the images and video and anecdotes we've seen uh, from Ukraine going through your mind as you give it. A feeling that uh, as, as a Canadian representative here, I have to speak for my country, for the values that I I think Canadians have that, that I've learned about over the years. And. I don't mind saying I, I, I wake up in the middle of the night uh, thinking about the people who are living in Ukraine and, and uh, thinking about the challenges facing those families, uh, those people, uh, and uh, what's at stake for the world. And uh, I realize I have to get up, put my get my suit on and go to work. I, I've got to do the best I can to try to try to help change the situation. I mean, it sounds ridiculous because... I mean, eloquence doesn't necessarily persuade anybody, but I, I do think the most eloquent things that I'm seeing these days are the actions of the people of Ukraine and and the, the, the what I'm also seeing happen in Russia, because I think we're seeing a transformation of opinion in Russia, which is which is very important. Let's talk about that latter part for a second. Are you seeing people who who certainly in the past were afraid to speak out or just going along to get along and they're like, this is a this is a bridge too far. They would have seen their, uh, you know, their president uh, annex Crimea eight years ago. Now they would have seen, uh, you know, forays into Georgia, forays into into you know other territories that uh, that that weren't theirs. That were also violations of international law, but but not quite as significant and not at quite a time in history. What are you seeing the reaction being in Russia that uh, get, that you think is galvanizing them so much? I think there are two things happening. One is I think I think I think there's a deep sense that Putin has gone too far. And and the, and the second thing is the economy. I mean this this is this is enraged opinion in the western world to such an extent that governments in the west, the Canadian government, other governments are taking steps that were pretty well unimaginable uh, 5 5 weeks ago. Or ten weeks ago, and the the Russians were banking. The Russian government, Putin, was banking on kind of moral vacillation from from the West, and he got the opposite. I hope we can stick to it, and I hope we can we understand what's at stake here, because the, the future of a lot of things is at stake in this battle right now. I, I have to say that I think it, when you look at what's happening in Eastern Europe more broadly. Uh, some countries have made a very substantial and dramatic transition to d- democracy and to a more open economy. And other countries have had a, have had a lot of tensions, a lot of difficulties and challenges. And, and, uh, but I, I can continue to believe that, uh, and Russia's had huge problems, huge internal difficulties, uh, Chechnya, mm-hmm. uh, it's enormous difficulty. For the Russians, it was the most dramatic. Because they were the boss, they were the they were the they were the the, the boss country 
and they were the and they were descended from an empire uh, before they were Soviet Union. There was the Russian Empire, and so the, suddenly you know the empire was collapsing. Yeltsin was more of a Democrat than anybody, but when Putin came in, I think people under under misunderstood what he was all about. He's not a Democrat. He doesn't have a Democratic instinct in his body. He's an autocrat. He's a KGB agent. And you can take the boy out of the KGB, but you can't take the KGB out of the mm. boy. And that's what we've learned. And it's taken us too long to learn this, but it's true. And the autocracy in Russia is not a necessary feature of Russian society. I think there's there's a there's a there's a, a, a liberal and a democratic spirit in Russia, which is which is waiting to be born. I, I believe that very strongly. And and I, I don't think Putin represents the best of Russia at all. I think he's a I think he's a terrible dictator. I think he poisons, you know, I think he authorizes the poisoning of his opponents. He, he jails his opponents. Nemtsov was poisoned. Uh, the former pre former head of U Ukraine was poisoned. Uh, you know, they poisoned people in England, different places. This is a brutal bunch of people. But it's not it's not it's not the Russians. It's yeah. It's the autocrats who've taken over and the kleptocrats. These guys, these multi-billionaires, trillionaires who stole money from their people and have gotten away with it all these years. And, and frankly, we've been indulgent of that. We haven't, we haven't responded the way we should have responded to what's taken place. And we need to know. We had um we had Bill Browder on our show on Friday. His lawyer Great was murdered. Guy. Right. Great yeah. Guy. And he's been yeah. generous with his time with us. And his lawyer was murdered by uh, Putin's yeah. men. And he was lucky to survive. And and he says there's only there's only one way Putin leaves. And 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 as he described it, it's of it's via it's on a stretcher, but it's via old age or it's someone getting to him. You've seen it through, you know, the last thirty years of history that that there will be somebody, there will be a Saddam Hussein go too far, a Muammar Gaddafi goes too far in the eighties, even Ferdinand Marcos in in the Philippines. But this is a little bit different. We we don't usually have someone that is considered such a global threat running a top 10 world economy. We have in any way, I think we could make the case since the 30s or 40s. So that adds that level of concern because he's got infrastructure that those other uh, dictators don't have, didn't have. Yeah, well, you're right. You're right. I mean, I'm not a predictor. I mean, I don't have the luxury of making a prediction like like Bill Browder. All I know is that uh, he is he's a, a menace to the security of the world. And he he's erratic. It was a complete betrayal of, of every you know other stuff that Russian leaders have said over the years of exercising their responsibility, going to the brink, but always you know understanding that a nuclear war is unimaginable. Well, he's 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 changing the rules, and I think this is terrible. I think he I think I think the people have, around him have got to decide: is it really worth it to to carry on this way, or is there isn't there a better way? I think that's. That's a question they have to they, they're going to have to deal with. If you it, it's not necessarily Monday morning quarterbacking, but um, you mentioned it. We we sort of let um, his arsenal get built up again. Uh, he sort of flexed his muscle, looked around, thought nobody's doing much about this. Nobody's doing much about that. We had eight years of uh, of George W. Bush in the White House. We had eight years of Barack Obama in the White House. So that's 16 years two two term presidents. And a lot of strength and power was was built up by Russia. If we could get in the time machine and go back 
um, what would we do differently in, in, in North American democracies to either prevent it or, or keep a stop check on it? I would go even further back. Mm-hmm. If I was to be honest, I, I, I think the key, the key was the missed opportunity was uh, when Russia was coming out of, out of, uh, out of communism and Yeltsin and, and then Putin were taking over. I think that was really the time to engage with them uh, in a very, very big way and to do everything possible to bring them into the circle. And I don't think we did enough of that. Um, and, and I mean, Putin himself said, you know, I asked Clinton if I could join NATO and Clinton never, never answered. Well, it's not just NATO, it's the EU, it's, it's all of the things that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Difficult to do. I mean, it's easy to look back and say, no, harder than it looks. I think that's a fair comment. But <laughs> I do think there were some proposals on the ground for like a Marshall Plan for, for Eastern Europe that would include Russia, where there would have been a much greater effort to rebuild. Uh, and I, I don't think we did enough to, to deal with the rules. And I think there was too much of a fantasy that if they get capitalism, that's going to solve the problem. Um, They didn't need that kind of capitalism. What they needed was democracy and liberal democracy, the rule of law. And they needed they needed that more than anything. And they still need it Mm. uh, because that's really the core of the core value of a decent society is is a constitutional democracy uh, that limits power and limits abuse and accepts the fact that none of us are none of us are above the law. We're all subject to the law. And it's that spirit that we lost. And clear to me, Putin is not one of those guys who thinks he's above the law. He thinks he is the law. And that's 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 bad. When that when that happens on that kind of a scale, very bad. Bob Ray is our guest, uh, former premier of the province of Ontario and current uh, ambassador, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. I want to finish. Uh, I know we're tight for time, but I want to finish on the present. We've talked a lot about what what's happened in the last 20 years. You mentioned the, the, the you know, um, resilience and the solvency of the Ukrainian people, we also have seen, um, you know, I, I, I'm shocked by it just in the last five days. And some of this is sort of cultural, almost like Friday, you hear, well, Ontario is going to ban, you know, Russian vodka in stores. And you're like, OK, well, what could that make a difference? But Ambassador, we've seen major billion dollar gas contracts get canceled. We've seen, you know, you're a sports fan like me. We've seen there goes the Champions League final. There goes the F1, probably the World Juniors next Christmas. Like we haven't when I grew up, right, we we didn't go to South Africa because we knew apartheid was wrong. So we wouldn't let South Africa be in the IOC and we wouldn't let them play until they until they followed the rules of of a proper uh, country. This is a significant a, uh, you know, again, I roll my eyes because cancel culture is often it's consequence culture. And there's consequences, massive consequences for what Russia has done in the last last six days coming in in through the sports world, the entertainment world, the business world. No question that there's been a momentum uh, that often happens in life, right? I mean, uh, it, you talk about sports. We all know that sports is a, is a momentum business. I mean, it's a momentum thing. Suddenly, the mood changes. Suddenly, a team gets catches on. Suddenly, things change. And all the, all the prognosticators prove to be wrong because there's just been that, that, that sudden shift. I think we're seeing that in public opinion. I think public, it's, you know, what's driven the leadership of the, of the world and the sports leaders and other leaders, it's not necessarily what they would what they would automatically do. It's what opinion is saying, no, 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 this is where we want you to go. We've had enough. I th- I don't know whether you've, you've uh, put a, a trademark on 
consequence culture, but it's a good word. I, I, I think very good, very good branding. I mean, I think we are, hopefully, we are moving to a consequence culture. Things have consequences. You can't get away with this stuff. You can't go in and murder and mayhem and expect everybody to say, well, it's an internal matter. It's not an internal matter. You, mm-hmm. You've now done it to another people. And then they say, well, they're not really a people. You say, yes, they are. And, and that's, and so I think the demonstrations that we're seeing, the mood change we're seeing in the business community and everywhere else. Now, question is, can we stick to it? Because the, the pain involved will be, will be shared. If you can't impose sanctions that are that tough on another, on a country like Russia, which even though it's not the world's greatest economy is still a player. And you can't do that without it having consequences. And so we're going to see a lot of things uh, in terms of uh, food prices, gas prices, and things that people uh, hurt people. Mm-hmm. So governments are going to have to respond and say, well, we're going to help you deal with that. We're going to help you help you deal with that. We're going to respond in a more, more effective way to, to help people cope with the impact. But this is not going to be over quickly or easily um, unless a miracle happens. Uh, but it is, it is, we are on the right path and we just have to hope that we can keep opinion with us because, uh, I'm living proof that opinions change, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've been up and down and I've seen, I've seen opinion move. So opinion is fickle. So we got to make sure there's leadership there to hold people together when things start to change. Well, on a current note, and I'll throw it out there. My wife and I say this all the time. We say this to our kids. We watched a lot of the news footage on the weekend and we're like, Sometimes you win the lottery with with where you were born. And and we did in Canada. So as incredibly, you know, visceral and we're all opinionated and divided and the three to four weeks in Ottawa um, all drove us a little crazy, which in whichever respect we we saw it, we look overseas and we're like, it's not so bad here. We can work out our differences with words and, and, you know, uh, debate and. Uh, opinion and maybe even a sense of humor and as much as we raise our voices sometimes we can do this in a different way and not everybody gets that choice across the planet you know that i sure do i feel it every day here at the un mm-hmm. uh we're the envy of the world we are the envy of the world people people's come to me and say you you have a great country and 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 they're not just flattering they just think that what we have is is a remarkable thing and uh and I think it's what gives us our our ability to connect with a lot of people mm. around the world is because people know that we're lucky, but also know that we don't take it for granted and that we're willing to share it. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the Canadian spirit. Well, you know, the reverence I have for you. Thank you very much for the time and for our listeners as well uh, here in Toronto and uh, just a phenomenal speech in uh, in the UN Assembly um, on Monday. Thank you very much again for making the time for us. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Greg. Appreciate it. As Time Magazine was documenting uh, that I mentioned a couple times this morning, they estimate 1,000 Russians a day are dying at the hands of Ukraine defending itself. 4,000 men uh, men, and maybe some women have died uh, from the Russian military in four days uh, prior to me saying this right now. That's twice the number of U.S. deaths in Afghanistan over 20 years. Um, so, look, this is compelling all of us. It's hard to turn away from. 
I don't know what our bandwidth is to uh, to continue watching it, but it's it's a fascinating point in history. I want to welcome on Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda on TV Ontario between 8 and 11. Um, not between 8 and 11, at 8 and 11 in the evening. Steve, I don't want to make you work. Uh, it's three times the pay if you're working three times as hard. We, yeah. we should invoice accordingly if that's happening. You tell me if it is. Just wink twice. I don't think it works that way. I think it's on <laughs> at 8 and at 11. It's an hour show, not a three-hour show. Thank you. Right. And operating at a set salary and set working conditions is the mayor of Brampton, uh, Patrick uh, Brown. It's great to have you on as always, Patrick. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, Steve, let's start with you. The, the I mentioned this, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. It's an unbelievably unprecedented moment. You know, we've had uh, our parents grew up with war on TV with with Vietnam, um, to some extent, Korea. We I was a college student watching uh, Desert Storm in 1990 or living in the States when the U.S. invades Iraq in 2003. This is a lot more unprecedented in part because of we're seeing the Western world unite against a world power and we're seeing the people of Ukraine. Um, we played a clip of two 19 year old college students, university students who said, uh, sign me up. We're in the Ukrainian army now. It's unpre- unprecedented coverage and an unprecedented time. Well, let me add another thing to that. But part of what makes this unprecedented as well is the social media involvement. And we are able, you know, Vietnam was, they said, the first television war where you could come home and after your dinner was over, flip on the news and, and essentially watch half a world away uh, soldiers engaged mm-hmm. in battle, uh, combat, uh, the likes of which you had never been able to see before on the news. Now with social media, uh, the influence it's having on people, the, the way it's able to inform people as to what's going on, um, the way it is able to mobilize public opinion against the Russians, I just, I don't know what Putin, I don't know what Putin was thinking, Greg. I just, the, the, you would think at this point in history, uh, you know, tin pot dictators would have learned by now that this usually ends badly, and yet here we are again. Yeah, here we are again. Mayor Brown, the coverage has been, as, as Steve mentioned, unprecedented. Um, you have a city to run. You have tremendous, uh, you know, uh, juggling duties with uh, balls in the air of a, of a political nature. Yet I- I'm sure when you get home with your young family, it's it's hard not to watch. It's hard not to try and stay as informed as we all can about this time difference factors in as well. It's on late at night and early in the morning. You know, it's it's harrowing. And you know, I went to, we have a Ukrainian church in Brampton, and I went to the, the church service where they were praying for Ukraine um, on Sunday. And the, the father, Roman Galza, uh, there, his his daughter is actually the Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, um, uh, Larissa uh, Galza. And so she came by Zoom, and members of the church could ask her questions. And what, you know, made me shiver just thinking of their reality is hearing their questions. You know, here's residents of mine in Brampton asking about their loved ones in Ukraine who who they can't get in touch with or they they don't know where they are. Just imagine that, Greg. Mm-hmm. You know, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, parents, grandparents that are facing a bombardment of of uh, of an attack of of lethal weapons from from Russia and not knowing if your loved ones are alive. You know, we have civilians dying in Ukraine every day. And so it's just, you know, when when you realize it's someone's family that we're talking about, it just really hits home um, how barbaric it is what Russia's engaged in right now. Mayor Brown, it makes the GTA such a unique place to observe this as well, because, um, you know, our our show's heard from uh, people of of Russian heritage and they're 
you know, it's hard for them. Like, like whether they grew up there, whether their fathers or grand or grandparents, mothers, grandparents grew up there. They're um, they they don't know really how to react, and they sure don't want any um, you know, uh, uh, online abuse. They don't want any abuse. But it's really hard to fly the flag and feel too good about what's happening. And many of the Russian people, it's well documented, didn't want this, don't support it. And and they find it difficult. To, at least they can speak out here, but they can't speak out back in Russia about it. No. And you see when there's protest in, in Russia, people are being uh, arrested. And so, you know, I, I am sure um, that for Russians living in Canada, they're probably horrified and mm-hmm. embarrassed uh, um, by the conduct of, of Putin. And he's going to go down in, in, in history as a, as an international pariah and war criminal. And, uh, you know, I, I hope his own people uh, rebel against that. Greg, can I make a point on that? Absolutely, Steve, yeah. It's so important to remember, uh, as the mayor has just reminded us, that there, there are Russians in our midst here, uh, or people with Russian background, uh, many of whom no doubt left the former Soviet Union because they wanted to get away from all of this and they embraced democracy. And, uh, you know, we cannot tar an entire community with one brush. Um, let, let, let's let's be civil to everybody right now. Right. That's that's an important, uh, I think, lesson from all of this as well. I'm glad you said that. And I think, Mayor Brown, you were inferring that as well. We've learned our lessons over time uh, when it comes to, you know, whether it's a, a terrorist attack, whether it's 9-11. We've got to understand that. Uh, yeah, let's let's get the perpetrators. Let's do this. We understand there'll be government and military response. But people living in our own communities, we can't just make an assumption that there is a, uh, a, you know, a, a quiet support for for something terrible that has happened or is happening yeah without doubt yeah it's what it's one of those unbelievable things let me let me go to the uh the, the whole culture thing we find out this morning uh steve that disney has decided to stop releasing uh films warner brothers isn't going to put the new batman movie in russia I, i've never in eight days i've never seen such a you know, united community. And, and some people have referenced it on text this morning. It's almost like Russia's getting, uh, you know, a, a victim of canceled culture. But in essence, it's consequence culture. I've never seen um, the sports world unite and say, you don't get an F1 race. Champions League finals out of there. We're kicking There's a, a team in Europa League that's got four Russian-born players on the team. Players are from everywhere else. And they said, no, nope, you guys are out. I've never seen anything like it in the sports world. Usually there's so many sporting political conflicts that we're all, all three of us are aware of, but I've never seen such unification here in the last week. I think you haven't seen it before because it hasn't happened before. And, and I, I, I'm, listen, I don't know this, but I would assume that part of Putin's calculation in deciding to invade Ukraine was the notion that the West would be too weak and too divided and not have its act together to respond in unison uh, or, or with unity uh, and, and would be too self-interested and wouldn't want to give up the almighty buck and would just continue to do business as usual because, after all, who cares about Ukraine? Putin assumed we would say. And I guess he's learning a lesson that w- when there are important issues at stake and when lives are being lost and when something as egregiously against uh, w- what the civilized world, quote unquote, would think is appropriate is happening, uh, you know what? Maybe the West is capable of actually singing out of the same hymn book and coming together and taking some sanctions that might have some bite, it won't change his mind, but it, it, it will it will plant a flag at a moment in history that says this is not acceptable behavior anymore in the 21st century. We've had enough war, and we can't solve our problems this way, and damn it, we're going to do a little something together about this, and, and let's see where it goes. 
Mayor Brown, it's also, know, it's also an educational tool, isn't it, to a great extent? Like w- when I grew up, I knew I knew who and what South Africa was about. Why? Not because of, of an economic sanction, because they weren't allowed to compete in sports. They weren't allowed in the Olympics. They weren't allowed to put a team together to try and qualify for the World Cup because of apartheid. So this is a great education tool for people that might be a little more sports focused than politics focused as to how wrong what's happening currently is. Well, and it may weaken his his hold at home in the sense that he's always wrapped himself around the success of uh, of Russian athletes. And so, mm. you know, he intentionally takes photo, fo- uh, photos with Russian hockey celebrities. You know, he takes photos uh, with uh, tennis celebrities like Daniel Medvedev. And, and the fact that he's becoming a pariah in the sports world, too, um, you know, may help educate his, his own uh, residents um, of how much of a pride he, he, he has become. And so when you hear an Alexander Ovechkin say no war, and I'm sure there'll be others um, that, that are saying the same thing, um, you know, that is almost a, an information tool to his own, his own people because the Russian government obviously is engaged in misinformation campaigns. You know, they, 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 they try to doctor media and the internet. And so to have, you know, very clear comments against Putin coming out from the sporting world, I, I, I believe is helpful. And I just have to say, I love Wayne Gretzky and seeing Wayne Gretzky talk about boycotting um, you know, Russia's participation was just beautiful to see. Yeah, that's great to, to not have uh, the Russian team here or the Belarus team here for the World Juniors in the summer when we try and get it started again in Edmonton. That's going to be great television in August. It'll be weird, but we'll get used to it. Now, I should point out, you're still a weekend warrior hockey player, Mayor Brown. Unlike Vladimir Putin, I don't think people let you score eight goals a game. And <laughs> and uh, I'm sure, you, you know, you still get the puck taken off you once in a while. I don't I don't think you've got quite the quite the pull on the ice that uh, that that he does. Maybe never again he will, but either way. I get bruised and abused on the ice, and I like it that way because it, that's hockey. But uh, I was going to say, it was comical watching some of those videos of Vladimir Putin playing hockey, and he's moving at uh, you know two miles an hour, and people are literally letting him go by, probably scared that someone will shoot them if they, if, if they don't. But uh, it, it's a complete farce. Uh, let me stick with you here on this, and then I really want to hear Steve's thought. But, uh, but masks, you, uh, you've been vocal about it, um, and you're well aware. Uh, you and I have been in lockstep on a lot of these issues the last – several months maybe almost up to a year um and uh and, and people come for you sometimes like but politics you got to have the, the, that thick skin media business steve knows the same way this is um we're coming into a real interesting era right now right vax passports are are getting cut for restaurants and gyms and bars and, and very um how would we put it non-essential places to go although you t- try telling somebody that likes to work out or likes to be out or a restaurant owner that it's non-essential this is going to be really interesting to see if this is a hurdle we can climb over and then get to masks when it comes to kids in schools. In Alberta, I should point out, they've had it done for two weeks. And Jason Kenney put a statement out yesterday saying, and the numbers do back it up, hospitalizations are down, cases are down. Um, Alberta, as many problems as there have been and as many things as I think we'd agree Jason Kenney may have gotten wrong, they're doing really well without masks in education settings the last three weeks. Well, you know, Greg, I remember when we were advocating to have kids back in school in January, you know, and part of my advocacy, and there was a lot of criticism for this, is if kids could go back to school in the rest of the world and in other provinces, why couldn't they in Ontario? You know, is the public health data different in other provinces and in other states and other countries? Of course, the science and the data is the same. Uh, and right now, the fact that you've got, you know, our neighboring province, Quebec, you know, taking masks off, off children, 
who want to, you know, it's all mm-hmm. by choice. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't want to, if you have a child that finds it difficult and uncomfortable to be aware and learning in the class with a mask for eight hours while seated, then they don't have to. Um, you know, I, I struggle to understand why the physicians and the public health department in Quebec, which has a similar population, similar population density, um, could say that it's safe to do so. And in Ontario, you know, we, we struggle to get there. You know, I believe the government is going to lift this this mask mandate. Um, you know, hopefully uh, in March uh, mm-hmm. or 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 sooner. You know, I, I I just I think the data is there, and and I think we're in a very similar predicament to to where we were in January with the reopening of schools. There's just a lot of fear out there. There's a lot mm-hmm. of fear, and I think rather than stoke that fear, I think it's important that those of us um, in public service and and those that are are discussing this on TV start to tell people it's okay to get back normal. I went to a, a pub on Super Bowl mm-hmm. um, to watch the game and it was empty and I was so sad. And I asked the owner of the pub why his restaurant that has lost so much over the last 18 months was empty. He said, people are still scared. Yeah, there, there is that. Steve, this is, and, and Steve, I know your show is going to be front and center covering the provincial election in 90, 95 days from now. We're all going to judge the political uh, impact of whether something works or whether it doesn't. And then whatever, whatever the two opposition parties come up with as a, as a counterbalance, what would they be doing differently? It's like it's again, we talked about unprecedented times in the world. It's kind of unprecedented in Ontario leading into an election to have massive decisions that allow people to to act and come and go independently like we always used to. Yeah, I'm not a policymaker, obviously. I'm just a policy observer. And I would merely observe that uh, we should follow the facts. And if the facts have changed and uh, they obviously permit for a different decision to be made vis-a-vis masks, well, then let's make it. May very well be here that uh, Mayor Brown was ahead of the curve when it came to realizing where we were at on this. Good for him. I just got back from a week in Florida, and I can tell you, (laughs) there's no COVID in Florida. (laughs) I went to a Florida Panthers hockey game, uh, an arena with uh, about 15,000 people in it, and uh, I think my daughter and I were the only ones with masks on in there. And even the guy, even the guy who was walking around with his sign on saying, uh, you know, please keep your mask on. Even he wasn't wearing a mask. So, you know, it, it just made me in a bit of an T- Tell us, how, tell us, Steve, can. Steve, tell us how you felt there, because you wrote a great piece on, on the TVO website about going to your first movie back seven, eight months into COVID and, and how, you know, there was some trepidation. We've all had those those trepidatious moments. What was it like being at the at the NHL game then? Uh, it was not only was it fine, it was fabulous. Uh, you know, Florida Panthers are a good team, so it was great to see some good hockey. And, uh, and, and nobody hassled me for having the mask on. It was all fine. And anyway, uh, you know, Greg, can I take 20 seconds here to talk about one other thing? Yeah. I, I, sorry to sort of hijack the conversation here, but I want to make sure I got this point in. 51 years ago today, and I want to say this with the mayor of Brampton here, Bill Davis was sworn in as premier of Ontario, our 18th premier. Happened 51 years ago today. And I, I just, um, you know, he died this past summer, mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that everybody remembers uh, what a great man he was and what an important contribution to our province and country he made. And, um, you know, just being on with Patrick Brown here, who I know knew him extremely well and, and whom Mr. Davis uh, really liked a lot and endorsed for mayor, as I recall. Uh, I wanted to make sure your listeners had a chance to remember this very fine man. That's awesome. Patrick, yeah, uh, you said it before, His uh, just an unmatched legacy uh, in the province of Ontario uh, for pre- as far as premiers go in the 20th century. He, he radiated decency at a level uh, that I don't think any, any, anyone else in public service I was able to uh, 
uh, to, to replicate. Uh, so he's a, a national treasure uh, that will be forever remembered. Steve, so glad you brought that up. That added a lot, and that's exactly why uh, we have uh, gentlemen like you guys on. And I'm so glad you contribute to the show. Thanks very much, both of you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Good to be with you. A third incident this month, this is not great, um, involving students performing a Nazi salute within a Toronto District School Board school. Um, B'nai B'rith Canada says students at Pleasant Public School in North York uh, performed a Hitler salute in class. And this was the second report of this, not at the school, within about nine days. Uh, so a Jewish teacher in a grade six classroom um, was targeted. And this is a substitute teacher. Two boys performed the salute. Uh, this was not an accident. They kept the arms. The report is they kept their arms raised for a lengthy period. The teacher said, stop. They did not. Uh, and the quote from uh, Michael Mostyn uh, from B'nai B'rith Canada, their CEO it is clear that anti-Semitism is a systemic problem within TDSB schools, and it will take considerably more effort from government, Jewish groups, and the TDSB itself to root out the phenomenon. But this has been, I, I don't i don't know how to describe it beyond a incredibly racially charged school year at a lot of different boards, at a lot of different schools. Our next guest did make note of as well a couple incidents of anti-black racism at uh, the Etobicoke School of the Arts. And he's on the line to join us. Uh, we won't, I don't know that we'll solve this in the next eight minutes, but we've got to say something and do something about this. He's the director of education for the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, and he's been on before. He is uh, Neil Orlowski. It's great to have you back on, Neil. You know, we just sorted out the view in Whoopi Goldberg, and uh, and and now this. Um, but this this hits home. We, we talk to our kids about race. We uh, I've had my youngest kid come home and say, somebody called me a white such and such, a white such. And I'm like, you know that there's... There's just you cannot go back with certain words and he knows what the words are and there's always going to be playground taunting and whatnot. Kids are kids. Boys are boys. But my gosh, it, it feels like this school year. Does it feel like that to you? We've just taken this to a very dangerous level of conversation. No, absolutely. And first of all, thank you very much for having me. There's a, a couple of things. If, if I can just correct you for a moment, this is actually the fourth incident of school anti-Semitism. It is the third incident of students performing the Hitler salute. Okay. I just want to remind you that on February 8th, a teacher likened forced wearing of the Yellow Star of David during the Holocaust to current COVID-19 restrictions within the school mm. that teachers now on leave. But I absolutely agree. I mean, there are words that our students know not to use. We know that students and, and even society comes down harsh against anybody that calls out or uses the N-word or makes derogatory terms towards the 2S LGBTQ plus community or the Islamic community and so on. But there seems to be a growing tolerance. And that, that's what I'm using, tolerance as in we know you're here, we will accept you as long as you stay in the shadows, tolerance when it comes to anti-Semitism. And some people have likened the, the recent events, and I'm just going to talk about Charles Best on February 1st, Valley yeah. Park Middle School on February 7th, Pleasant Public on 25th. When these students knowingly targeted Jewish teachers, but I also want to state that these incidents, these three Heil Hitler salutes, actually followed claims of vandalism within the school where it was reported, but it seems not much is being done. And it feels like discipline, um, there's there's a lot of different levels of discipline. There's questions of, and as you know, the vandalism, does something rise to the level of a hate crime? We know this. If someone's doing this in the workplace at the age of 25 or 35, 
um, it would be deemed criminal. But because we're talking about, obviously, my God, 11 year olds and 12 year olds, we hope there's teachable moments. And yet and yet. It can't be nothing. It nothing. We can't accept that nothing's being done about it because that's not fair to kids who are targeted. It's not fair to educators who are targeted either. It's not right. Exactly. And you're mentioning that they are dealing with elementary schools. I mean, in the Pleasant uh, Public School, these students were age 12. He's a grade six student. At let uh, sorry, at Charles H. Best, they were elementary students. At Valley Mead, they were grade eight students. We're talking about 14 years old. Now, I don't believe that these students should be suspended. I don't believe that these students should be, you know, charged with uh, a hate crime or perpetuating hate. I think that that's where learning needs to come in, whether it's restorative justice, whether it's um, public consultation. This is where the community gets involved. But during uh, last, sorry, last year, Justin Trudeau, following the Malmo conference, stood, stood, uh, stood up and said, you know, anti-Semitism is not just something that the Jewish community needs to solve on their own. People have called anti-Semitism the canary in the coal mine, saying that we are really, you know, an indication of what's going on in the world. And yet the TDSB is talking about being more transparent. Uh, but we have to remind people that the TDSB started their school year uh, having or holding mandatory PA days during Rosh Hashanah, where they seemingly asked teachers to either come in to start the year with mandatory professional development during one of the highest Jewish holidays for, for the Jewish people or reflect on their religion. And that's really what set the tone. Yeah, it did. It, it did in terms of timing. Um, when we talk about this in in the community, is there a way to sort of narrow in and figure out what what are these teachable moments? Are kids getting this from the home? Are they getting them from pop culture? We would note this like and, and you and I probably about the same age. We'd have gone to school in the 70s and 80s and stuff was said that could never be allowed to be said. I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, a, a, a kid I know of was suspended uh, for using a derogatory word towards a female classmate. It wasn't that word and it wasn't that other word, but it was a bad word. That word would not have gotten a kid suspended 25, 30 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. It does today. So we are taking a tougher tact, as you note, on on issues of LGBTQ, of of issues of anti-black racism. We know that that we are and we're better for it. But it's got to be the same thing across the entire playing field. Absolutely. And, And I guess. Even even to that point, it comes down to what is happening in the school boards. Like I said, we're not looking for students to be suspended. At the age of 12, this is education. Some teachers, and this is where the vileness of the comments come in, some teachers via social media have come out to say that in the case of the um, the Valley Park, and, and just for those of you who aren't familiar, Valley Park is across the street from Mark Garneau. Mark Garneau made the, the news a couple months ago for having a free Palestine um, walkout. And myself, I'm not equating free Palestine to anti-Semitism, right. but it talks about sort of the the um, temperature of the community. Some teachers following that incident said that the students themselves and the community themselves felt threatened because of the the um, Judaism of the teacher, and that that environment, the students felt that their own identities were being questioned, which is why. To me, this sounds like victim blaming. So whereas uh, the TDSB says that 91% of all these in-school events are happening because of the students, what about that remaining 9%? AGPI is calling for three things, both at the, sorry, at, at the ministry level, right down to the board level. 
Number one, we're calling for the Ministry of Education to make the Grade 11 World Religions course a prerequisite course for students obtaining the OSSD, the Ontario Secondary School Diploma. We feel that true diversity, equity, and inclusivity learning is had when we come to learn everybody's stories, not just the story of, you know, we're talking about amplifying anti-Black racism over the last 28 days with Black History Month, not just that. So we're calling for greater understanding of all bodies. Number two, we're asking for the Ontario College of Teachers to come out with and we called for this about six months ago, a professional advisory on anti-Semitism. We saw a great celebrated anti-Black racism professional advisory that spoke to the Ontario College of Teachers stance. But we want this to be understood as ideological indoctrination as a form of grooming. And thirdly, and we've seen this come out of TDSB recently, where the genocide course might be something that we're looking as making mandatory within our schools or rather genocide um, education. Mm. But when it comes to the actual consequences, it seems like some experiences are being valued more than others. Neil Orlowski is our guest on Toronto Today, Director of Education for the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. You bringing all that up raises uh, a question I'm sure a lot of parents have on their mind that's relatable, and that's how much of current events. Uh, what I loved is when our yeah. history teacher or English teacher would say, let's talk about something that's happening in the world right now. Let's put our curriculum aside. I'm not going to teach you right from the textbook for 15 minutes. And I liked that when I was 10 and 11 years old, the same way I did when I was a politics student at Western. I'm sure there's some parents that say, no, 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 that's not what my kid's there for. He's not there uh, to learn about. I'll teach him about Russia v. Ukraine, vis-a-vis Ukraine at home. I'll teach him about conflicts in the Middle East at home. But what I loved was when somebody would say, all right, there's a, a conference going on with Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. Mm-hmm. Here's what this side thinks. Here's what that side. Th- and you know how tricky, how tricky Middle East politics can be to navigate. A lot of elementary school teachers and high school teachers just don't want to do that tap dance. But are we losing are we losing a hold of just saying um, education's got to be more than just the curriculum in a book? We are. And these teachable moments, and that's really what the teachers themselves are calling it. The teachable moments are really where students come to understand the lived curriculum. If I can just go back, math class is the perfect example. Mm-hmm. I always joke in my politics class that how many of you use Pythagorean theorem and all the hands go down? <laughs> the, you know. But I say, how many of you have ever hung a picture? How many of you have ever hung a TV on the wall? That's when you're actually living the content. We're not doing that when it comes to politics. We're teaching theory, but we're not relating theory to practice. And I do think a lot of teachers are staying away from it because, number one, they're not overly comfortable with their own background when it comes to live breaking events. But at the same time, they're worried about the polarization, especially when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian relations. There's so much noise and static that anti-Zionism is or is not anti-Semitism. I don't believe that many people can separate those two, in which case it's better for them in their own safety to just forget it. Either we ignore the topic or we simply, for lack of a better term, whitewash it and just try to apply it in other ways. Um, a good example simply is the fact that last week was, was Pink Shirt Day. Our AGPI went into a number of elementary schools last week, and we spoke specifically about the role of the upstander in the Holocaust. Now, we didn't talk about gas chambers. We didn't talk about the trains. We talked about 
you know, the Holocaust as a form and really as ideological bullying in the 1930s that led to these events. It's the way we teach our students and the content and the examples we're using. And I think teachers are afraid to do that. Yeah, I think they are. And whereas we'd get, you know, practicality and uh, and, and measured conversations that could result in, in some emotions for, for students for sure at that age. We also had, you know, we had weird things in the pop culture. Either. I'm, I'm a little, you are too. We're both a little young for Hogan's Heroes, but it was <laughs> yeah. on in reruns. So the last thing you, you don't, if you're a teacher and you see somebody doing a, Char- a Sergeant Schultz impression on the, uh, on the playground, you'd be like, oh God, but, but it's a sitcom that's on at the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the right, that's troublesome for a lot of people. And I get why. It is. I, I think that we're also part of a generation where it, big tent inclusivity really devalued the individual experience. Yeah. We're trying to create an environment where everybody is equal. The problem is that when it comes to anti-black racism or anti-Indian racism or, or anti-Semitism, these aren't the same. They're not rooted in the same. They don't manifest the same. And the way they're internalized are very different. When we see the TDSB come out, to, to with a comment saying that racial slurs like the n-word or um, actions like the the Hitler salute well I'm, I'm sorry the three events that took place last month were not rooted in anti-black racism unless we're talking specifically about the Etobicoke School of the Arts mm-hmm. and so by doing that to draw these false equivalencies I think devalues both experiences and again this this is why I told my kid and I told him years ago I said if someone says you know what's on, on the playground what what's your white ass looking at you, mm-hmm. I go you got to take it you, like you're yeah. taking you there will be pills that you have to swallow in life when you get older and that's going to be one of them so no matter what the color skin color religion creed sexuality anything i'm like that if that's the worst you're going to get you're you're pretty privileged okay you understand that exactly understand that um i i'd love to keep going on this and i'd love to talk about current events as well so let's do that again next time we get a chance to chat neil i appreciate it saw this story about uh judy collins and i had to remember like that's not joan collins um this is judy collins yes what? so she's a singer songwriter this story i love this story i feel like it hits close to home with me so she's been married for 18 years okay? and how long have you she- been married I've been married. I don't even know well this is her second about- also i think that's incre- also incredibly important to point out why because you learned from the first maybe but i'll tell you why in a <laughs> bit okay so um, I think I've been married 16, 16 Okay, years. so you're in Judy it's, Collins' territory, except the fact she's 82 and you're not. Uh, it's all the same after 10, oh, okay. I think. Great. Okay, she's married 18 years, and she says there's one secret to a happy relationship, and that is separate sleeping spaces. What do you think of that? If you and your wife had separate bedrooms or separate beds, or do you think that you would like that or hate it? No, un- unconscionable. Uh, I, c- I could never tolerate it. I need to be with the person. I'm a I'm a hands on <laughs> with consent uh, physical person. You're a cuddler. I would have never guessed you as a cuddler. Here's what I know doesn't happen is people. Do- now, when uh, I will tell you for my naps, I want uh, my house being evacuated is great because I can't nap with people wandering around and making noise and the blender going and then, you know, a TV in another room. Yeah. I I can sleep through anything at night. A hurricane could blow the doors open at night. And I can sleep. But here's what I'd say. What I notice being in a couple thing for as long as I have been is nobody sleeps face to face. And you see that in movies and television. And I'm like, no, because people are breathing all over each other. Once that's done, people tend to like turning the other direction. 
One person faces the one side of the bed, the other person faces the other. Yeah, so you're back to back in the bed. So why not have your own bed where you don't have to fight for the blanket where someone every time they toss and they turn, it doesn't affect you or their alarm goes off really early because they have a morning show and it messes you up. I wonder what your wife thinks. That's what I'd want. Well, I'm asking um, the wrong person. All my clothes are in another room and they have been since working mornings in Detroit. So you can't, I will never turn a light on to get dressed. Now that said, my famous uh, early morning uh, baths are... (laughs) Are in the master, uh, the you know the master bathroom of so the, the master bedroom. So the water is running while she's yeah, she sleep. could probably she sleeps through the water running. But this is a thing. That's because she's gotten used to it. She's had no choice. This is a thing now, especially with real estate. I've known and in new homes. I know this is a trend in California now, where they have separate master suites. So there's a his a his and hers. You have two separate bedrooms with your bathrooms, your en suites and whatnot, and you live and that's and it's just for sleeping. You can come together for other things and oh, thanks. <laughs> but for the actual sleeping, imagine that. No, see, but you you wake up first. You take your bath. You're the diva of the bedroom. So I'm asking the wrong person. The but you don't do this. You don't have a separate no, space. No, but I would love it. We've actually always talked. Not it doesn't even have to be a separate space. I'm telling you, the first five years of our marriage, it took us. We had to get used to because I've I've gone my whole life sleeping by myself and I've loved it. I love my bed. I've always had a cat or something in the bed with me, but that's it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, like my baby, my cats can sleep in the bed with me. But then we got married and like, you know, he's got different things and he wakes up early. Well, now I do too, but it was just different. I hated it. And so we talked about once we talked about getting bunk beds in the bedroom. We're like, oh, wouldn't that be oh awesome? God. I would, we would love it. We never did it because, you know, the kids will think it's weird socially, whatever, but a bunk bed in the master bedroom. Wow. And I, I don't want the top bunk. I'm too old for that. I need to take care of my back. You think? We, um, <laughs> well, it's your husband's too old. Everybody's, too, anybody over 14 is too old for a bunk bed. <laughs> the weight will, I've fallen out of a bunk bed before. I still have nightmares about it. My parents raced in. I was 20. So um, it's all, it's a very embarrassing story. I can save uh, for the morning. Hey, you, you might be talking me into this a little bit. You may, maybe, maybe think that a little bit to some extent. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We greatly appreciate it. Feel free to share this podcast. Subscribe to it if you haven't already. We're glad you're finding us. we got a live show tomorrow on Wednesday, 5.30 to 9 a.m. on the second day of March. Thanks so much for listening. Have yourself a great day.